please turn your Bibles to Philippians. We are in the book of Philippians. We finally made it to chapter 2. Yay! Well, that's not too bad. We've been in Mark for five years, Brother Wes. Doing well. We're doing well. So we're almost finished. Only a couple of chapters left in Mark, I think. So as we make our way to Philippians, let me remind you the last week and previous sermons before that, um, we looked at primarily how we ought to live as citizens of heaven in this world, how to conduct our lives worthy of the gospel. And then the Apostle Paul went on to explain that even though we are born again, we are saved individually, we are never meant to be alone. We are meant to live as citizens of heaven together. We are meant to stand firm as soldiers, as we seen last week, together. We're meant to be striving forward as athletes together. We're meant to be witnesses for Christ in our struggles in witnessing life together. And we're meant to suffer for Jesus' sake together. That's a couple of sermons we covered all of that. Now, may I encourage you, if you do belong to Saving Grace Bible Church or you do want to make Saving Grace Bible Church your home, keep up with the sermons. If you want to know anything about Mark up until chapter, I think we're up to four, 14 now, uh, Brother Wes has covered it in great detail. I would encourage you to do that. But I want to remind you that the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans, because last week I had a fair few people ringing me up and texting me. It was so encouraging. What does it mean to suffer? I won't get into that because that's not, that's not the, uh, the sermon today. But I want to encourage you that the Apostle Paul said this in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is revealed in us. just want to give you just a blessing. Whatever suffering in Christ that we have in this world and any trials and any tribulation and any physical problems, they are not to be compared to the glory that will be revealed when Christ Jesus, either he takes us by death or rapture. Amen? And now the text before us, the Apostle Paul, he keeps on building on this, on the necessity of the brethren to come closer together, to fight together, to cheer each other on as athletes, to live for the upward goal in Christ Jesus, even under that heavy persecution. I want to remind you that this is not abstract. Even though we preach a couple of verses here and a couple of verses next week after that, the Apostle Paul from chapter 1, verse 27, it goes all the way to chapter 2, verse 11. They're all kind of connected. And Paul is talking about how we ought to live, how to be united with humility as we will look at today. And then he gives us the perfect example of that, which is Christ Jesus. I just want to remind you of that, that the Bible is connected. It's not abstract. So I just wanted to, to, to remind you of that. And we find ourselves then in chapter 2, verse 1 to 4, where it speaks about this unity that we're meant to have, but we're meant to have this unity with humility. With humility. The Apostle Paul now, he calls the church to up the ante, so to speak. 
and he calls the church in these few verses from, from chapter 2, verse 1 to 4, to die to self, for self-denial, to give yourself away, a call to be humbled for the purpose of church unity. This call continues to cause us to stand firm together, strive together and to be witnesses for Christ and to live in a manner worthy of the gospel with humble unity. But brethren, humility and unity comes with a cost. It means that you need to chip away your old self. You, give it away. Put its passions and its desires away and put on Christ Jesus to live a life for Christ in humility that the Christ will be amongst us, that we will glorify Him. It is to seek after righteousness, to thirst after Christ, the desire to lose self for Christ that we may live for Christ. You will know that humility is the very core um, for our faith. For no one has ever entered the kingdom of God unless they were humble. When Jesus says, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, they were humbled first. Before they entered the narrow gates, they were humbled. They were broken. They were people who were desperate and seen a desperate need for Christ Jesus. And Paul has been talking about in chapter 1, just as a reminder of external problems, in no way being alarmed of your opponents. Uh, That's what we spoke about last time. But what we will see here, that problems can arise within the body of Christ. That Instead of bringing unity, it can bring disunity. And problems, there still needs to be refinement. Remember, the Philippian church is a good church, healthy church, joyful church, but it still had problems and needed refinement. Like I said last week, there are two women who are arguing, but there are other things. People are selfish, right? You know, saving grace as much as we love the doctrine of God uh, we, we love the doctrine of grace. We are Calvinists to the core, right? And we fight tooth and nail about Christ. We don't have it all together yet. We haven't arrived at perfection. There still needs to be refinement so that we can attain that unity and humility that Christ calls us to have. <clears throat> so I've called this sermon today a call for unity in the church. And three things that we will look at. One, the motivation for unity. Two, the qualities of unity. And three, the process of that unity. So let's read together chapter 2, verse 1 to 4. And we'll begin with the first point, the motivation for unity. Therefore, the apostle says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, If there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent for one purpose. Do not do nothing from selfish ambition or 
empty conceit, but with humility in mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look at your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So here we begin the Apostle Paul before, again, he gives out some instruction. You've got to love the Apostle Paul. He wants to begin to encourage the body of Christ. And you'll see that in all Paul's letters. You say, where do I get this from? Because he says, therefore, in other words, therefore, what's a therefore? I told you to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. He goes back to verse 27. So because now, therefore, then let's have a look at this. Paul says, if there's any encouragement, if, if, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit or any affection or any compassion. Let me quickly tell you, how can Paul be encouraging if he's saying the word if? This word if, it is not if in a sense of maybe he is and maybe he's not. This word in the Greek means since. Since, because of, for this reason, this is the purpose. I'll give you an example of how it's used, for instance, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 30. But if God clothed the grass of the field, if, it means he did. That's what God does. I don't know about you, but if all this is true as we will study it, there is no greater motivation for us to be united in Christ, and to be moved with humility of Christ. True biblical motivation to move in unity, to be united and to move in love and peace for the purpose of the gospel does not come from any worldly motivation. It does not come from Joyce Meyer or Joel Osteen or all these other motivational speakers. It comes from Christ Jesus. It comes from a God who is a triune God. And God who is triune, He desires us to be one. So, let's begin with the first if. If, in other words, since there is encouragement in Christ. Encouragement speaks about comfort. It speaks about confidence. It speaks about that inspiration. If there is all of this in Christ, God is the God who encourages. God is the God who comforts. And his desire is to build up the church of Jesus Christ that the gates of hell will not prevail against her. In Romans chapter 15, verse 5, speaking of this word, it says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement give you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ. God is the one who encourages us. The motivation is Christ. The motivation is God. The motivation is the Spirit of God. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 5, we read, Blessed be the God of our Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the Father of the God of all comfort, who comforts us all in all our afflictions. How can we stand any persecutions if we are not motivated by the God who is a God of all comfort? 
that we may be able to comfort those who are in afflictions with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the suffering of Christ are ours in abundance, so also are our comfort in abundance in Christ Jesus. Isn't it wonderful? I don't know about you, but just reading this, what this does to my soul is I want to live more as a citizen of heaven. I want to be more striving together with my brethren. I want to soldier on with my brethren all the more. I want to be more united to the body of Christ. Why? Because Jesus is my rock. Jesus Christ, even though we may go through tribulations in life, Christ is there. He's my rock and the outcome must be unity. When I am weak, when I am in trouble, when I am persecuted at home and by my friends and by my neighbors, Christ Jesus himself gives us that encouragement to move forward and be strengthened. When we go off track and sometimes we feel like a a sheep without a shepherd, our shepherd brings us back to the sheepfold. And we can say with David, even though we we go through troubles in life where we feel so bad and the shadow of death is upon us, we can say with David, (coughs) Yahweh, I fear no evil because you are with me and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In fact, this word, it goes a little bit further, encouragement. It means to Call someone alongside, to cheer someone on, to give someone counsel. This word is used of the Holy Spirit. I will ask my Father in John 14, 16, and he will give you another helper. That's the same word. I would like to try and say it in Greek, but I can't pronounce it. I think it's parakalo. Yeah, Samuel's going like that. But we're not really concerned about how we pronounce it. We're concerned about what it means. The Holy Spirit of God is the one who takes residency in an unworthy believer and makes him worthy by the Spirit of God, by the power of God, and he brings us so into unity. And what Paul is saying here in essence, if Christ then is the one who encourages you to unity, he loves unity, he gets beside you to help you in unity, guess what? Be in unison. Be in unity. When Jesus prayed to the Father, he prayed for the believers to be united just as he and the Father are one. And so what this is telling us is at the heart, the very heart, the very passion, the very love of God that is within him has to do with unity within a triune God. And that brings us to the next if. If there's any consolation of love, since there is consolation of love, encouragement, serenity, Now, this word encouragement is getting beside someone to help them and to defend them. But this word consolation here speaks more of getting beside someone and helping them and whispering to them in their ear saying, be at peace. I love that. God does this. That's our motivation. I don't know about you, but has it been at times when you have been so troubled 
and there was an overwhelming peace that it didn't matter that the, the waves around you were killing you. There was an overwhelming peace. I didn't give it to you. It was God. God gave you that peace. Is there any consolation of peace in you? Is there any affection? This speaks of passion. It speaks of this love, speaks of from within. And that is to be understood that this is Christ's compassion and his love for us. And if that's true, he is the comforter. And he's bestowed that upon the believers so that the believers can be one. And God whispers in our ears, be one. Be at peace and be one, just like I and the Father are one and the Spirit are one. If anyone has this love, since you're born of God and you have this love, then be one. The outcome has to be unity. But then Paul takes it a bit further. The third if, if there is any fellowship with a spirit. I don't know how to bring this about. If you do not have fellowship with the spirit, living as a heavenly citizen is a lie. Trying to strive forward is a lie. Trying to soldier on is a lie. Because you must first have fellowship with the Spirit or none of these things make any sense. And unless God has removed your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh and He has caused you to be born again and He has replaced it with His own heart by giving you His Spirit and then He causes you to walk in His statutes, everything you do is useless and futile. You need to be born again. You need to surrender your life to Jesus Christ that the Spirit of God may come within you and then you'll have fellowship with the brethren and it will make sense. You must have the Spirit of God. There can be no rule living as heavenly citizens if we don't belong to heaven. There can be no standing firm in unity and no together and no rule suffering unless we have the Spirit of God. And since there is the Spirit of God and those of us who belong here, since this is true, then there is a plethora of encouragement and impossibility made possible. What does that mean? Look around you. We are all different people from different nation and different tongue and different color, from different walks of life. And yet God, by the Spirit, He brings us together, not just to occupy a space in His building, but together to belong to one another and to serve one another and to love one another that we may have fellowship with God, who is the God of three people, three in one. We, we want that, don't we? If we have the Spirit of God, then we must belong to one another. Brethren, we are baptized in one Spirit. We are called by one God. We are saved by one Savior. We belong to one body and we become God, one in God. Forgive me. There's no greater motivation for us this morning to be motivated to become one, to belong to Saving Grace Bible Church. And the fourth, if... 
if there's any affection and compassion. And this speaks of a heart of love that comes from the innermost being. Is there any affection of the soul? Since there is affection of the soul, since Christ has poured out that affection, that tender love in you, and compassion speaks of mercy and tenderness and, and, and those wonderful mercies that God gives us even morning by morning. Paul is calling the believers in Philippi to evaluate their unity even more. They ought to themselves put on this heart of love, this heart of compassion that Christ gave them. And if these truths are true, then what should we do? If these truths do not motivate us, let me tell you, ask you this question. What will happen to the church of Jesus Christ? How can we stand firm if we are not united? How can we strive together if there's no humility and unity? How can we fulfill the calling of God where he says his church, a people, the bride, are meant to be together if we are not together and if we're not united to one another? That's our motivation. The second point is, then if that's true, then what's it going to begin to look like? The qualities for unity. Now look at verse 2. That second point, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent for one purpose. If that's true, then make me joyful. This is a pastor of the church. This is an elder of the church. He's saying, here's what makes me joyful. Be united. Be one. Um, you know, I can't think of greater joy as an elder of the church, and I, I'm sure Brother Wes will agree with me, that we find no greater joy apart from our own joy in Christ that the brothers actually are unified. That the brothers and sisters are living together, loving one another, serving one another, in actual fact, outdoing one another in love and in service. That's the heart of an elder. It says in, in, in Hebrews chapter 13, because the opposite is true. If Paul says, make my joy complete, then the opposite must be true. In chapter 13 of Hebrews, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not grief. There is joy in the heart of the elders when we see brothers and sisters connecting. Brothers and sisters outdoing one another. But the opposite is also true. When a brother and sister is always sitting in the background and he's not getting involved, they don't participate, they don't seem to really belong, that saddens our heart. That saddens the heart of your leaders. And he says, being of one mind, that brings joy to Paul. 
It's not saying that Paul didn't have his joy in Christ Jesus and his love for him and his guidance and affection for Jesus Christ, but hearing that you guys are together, you guys are united, this is mind-boggling for me. It, it, it tops the cake. It is like me dying or you dying, some of you, in Christ Jesus. You're about to die. You have all the joy to see Jesus Christ and your loved one just says, I've surrendered to God. And you say, you've completed my joy. This is the apostle's heart. Have the same mind. Now, what it does not mean, it means we have the same thoughts, same mind, meaning we eat the same food. We drive the same cars. We live in the same homes. We look the same, dress the same. I think Amy should do that. That's not what that's saying. But what this is saying is be in agreement with one mind about the things of God, about love, about mercy, about witnessing, about coming together, about suffering together. Be of one mind. Unity does not come by liking the same things. No, it is centered on Christ. In fact, unity doesn't come and even if we like the same books, the same Puritans, and we compare with one another, unless Christ is the focus, unless Jesus is the focus, it will mean nothing to read books upon books upon books. Christ, Jesus. And this word, by the way, it is not so much a mind thing, but it is a practical thing. Have this mind. And you will see that in chapter um, chapter 2 and verse 5, as we will look at next time, when it says about Jesus, have this attitude. It's the same word. And so when it speaks about the mind, it's really talking about an attitude. Be of the same mind, it means that you are concerned about the things of God and you put it on Christ. You're setting your things, your mind uh, about the things above, not of the things of this earth. That's what it means to be of the same mind. Do not follow the prince of the power of the air who now works in the sons of disobedience, but have the same mind as what these guys are saying. Have the same mind, which is think about the prince of life who is to come, Jesus Christ. And then Paul goes on to say, maintaining the same love. Maintaining the same love. So you have this mind. You know what brings me joy is that you have the same mind and you're thinking Christ things, you're doing Christ things, and you are keeping this love. You are continually keeping this love. If Jesus gave you love, then keep it and keep keeping it sacrificial. It never ceases to amaze me how many Believers say that I love everyone. I just love everyone. And yet at the same time, they have no problem not being around anyone. I love everyone, but I have no problem being around anyone. They say I love everybody and they don't even belong to anybody. There is no standing together. There is no striving together. There is no living together, no suffering together. And yet, I love everybody. 
I'm going to give you a couple of verses that will debunk this notion of love. In 1 John, which some of you might have went through with me for a little while, 1 John chapter 3 says this from verse 14. And we mention this, I think, often, if not always, at the membership class. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. And he who does not love abides in death. So, but I love everybody. But how can you love the brethren if you're not with them? How can you serve them if you're not around? How can you cry with them if you're not around to know that they're sad? And how can you pick them up if you don't know if they've fallen? And Paul, uh, forgive me, John goes on to say in, in chapter 3, verse 16 of 1 John, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for whom? The brethren. You want to keep love? You want to understand love? That is laying down your life for the brethren, just as Christ did. That's a huge calling. And then in verse 18, he says, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but with deed and truth. And, and, and Paul, he's saying, here, keep this love. Well, what makes us fail to keep this love? Well, let me address the elephant in the room. It is your lack of love for Jesus. When you begin to lack love for your brethren, it is your lack of love for Jesus. Why do I say that? Because Jesus said, love one another. If you love me, you keep my commandments. And his commandments is to love one another. And all of a sudden, the lack of love that we have for Christ is affecting the body of Christ. And all other loves, they come and they overpass the love of Jesus Christ, and Jesus is still there, but you're nowhere to be seen among the brethren because you were falling in love with other things. Maintain this. It's a present, active, participle, plural. What on earth does that mean? It means you keep it, every individual, all the time. We are meant to keep this love. And how do we do that? To deny ourselves to the will of the Lord. And when we do that, that will produce true, practical, genuine, continual love that moves us by a humble spirit of God for unity. If there's no love, how can we, how, how can we be united? If our love is not rooted and grounded in Christ and to the brethren, then we will see in a minute, this cannot bring joy and unity. In fact, it can bring disunity. These are qualities that we must have. And this brings us to the next thing that Paul says in chapter 2, uh, two verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit. Just basically saying, be in harmony. Be one soul. Be in agreement. Be joined together in one accord. We've mentioned this before. Jesus prayed that we will be one. It means a lot to God for us to be one, for He's a holy trinity. 
This unity is a supernatural work of God, but it's a person whose desire is to be selfless for the purpose of harmony, for the purpose of the brethren. And what Paul is saying here, as such unity of spirit is a people that are not so much concerned about themselves, but they have a concern for the things of God. And then he says, intend for one purpose. Speaking of having the same common goal, one purpose. Glorify Jesus in your life. Walk as citizens who don't belong here. Make sure you get it. It is for the gospel and for Jesus' sake. And so Paul's saying here, have the same same mind, run the same race, love together, defend one another, be collectively seeking righteousness, be unified. So you got Christ who motivates us. Now these are the qualities. And now we're going to look at the process for unity. So look at verse 3 and 4. <coughs> Excuse me. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. This is huge. How do I bring unity? Well, he says two negative things here. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish selfishness and empty conceit. Verse 4, do not merrily look. By the way, the word merrily is added in the Greek. You see that in a, your NASB. It's in italic. So you can read this. Do not look for your own personal interest. Not merrily because someone goes, so I can look at my personal interest? No. That is not what that's saying. It is saying, take your eyes off yourself. Stop looking at yourself. And he begins to flesh out what does this unity really look like? How do I achieve it? Well, don't be selfish. What's selfish? There's a person who thinks he's self-worth. It is a person who's self-centered. This word actually speaks of resentfulness and strife. Hostility. I think the King James says strife on top of my head. This is a, a person who desires for self. This type of mind and heart has only one thing in mind, not to bring unity in a church, but strife and disunity. That's what selfishness does. He has a high view of himself or herself. A selfish man's goal in life is to look out for number one. He looks out for his own interest. He wants to fulfill his own desires. A selfish man is a man who's living in the flesh. And he couldn't be closer to the devil. And he's, not, he's closer rather to the devil than, than he is of God. A selfish man, he, he craves respect. He wants the best seats in the house. He wants honor. He wants to be seen. He wants to be heard. He wants to be served. He looks at his own personal gain. It's about him. 
A selfish man does not have in mind what is best for others and their needs, but only his own. This is the opposite of humility and cannot possibly bring unity. This is a deep-seated, rooted sin. And Paul wants to get right to the bottom of this. And it can be revealed in many ways. Selfishness is pride and they go hand in hand. It can be revealed in jealousy, in anger, in hatred, resentment, unforgiveness, argumentativeness, disagreements. And then there's a lack of involvement within the church. We must deal with this, brethren. Now, who can fall into this type of sin? Is there a specific sect of people that can fall into this sin? No. From your elders to your deacons to the layman to the, to the boy at the back who's on the mixer to the lady who's cooking, everyone can fall into this sin. Anyone can become selfish. And Paul says, dude, nothing, not a single thing that comes from selfishness. Paul mentioned this before. Those who were actually preaching Jesus Christ in verse uh, 17 of chapter 1, he says the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition. Paul says don't do that. Selfishness is disruptive. And it can easily bring down a healthy and joyful and wonderful church just like Philippians and Saving Grace Bible Church to a halt. When people are selfish, it is the opposite of being selfless. It is the opposite of being humble. And then the apostle says, or empty conceit. Empty conceit. These two go hand in hand, but I thought it'd be worth mentioning that the word in the Greek is made up of two words. And I actually really love this. One, the first part of it, it actually means empty, vain. And the second, loxa, is glory. So what is Paul saying here? Don't do anything that promotes yourself and vain glory. This is you promoting yourself. Vain glory promotes self. It has selfish ambition. I don't know how many of you last time were here when I said in the eyes of, of the world, the Apostle Paul would have seen as being crazy and narrow-minded because everything in his life was about Christ and him alone crucified and him I will proclaim. He would have looked at it as a lunatic. But the vainglory person is also narrow-minded, but is narrow-minded and it has nothing to do with the things of God. It has to do with self and vainglory. I want, Paul says, do not even feed this monster. That it will just get bigger and bigger and do nothing from that. Get rid of it from amongst you. Purge it. Then he goes on to say, but let me tell you how you should do it. I love this. Chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. With humility of mind, regard one another 
more important than yourselves with humility. We want to grow with true biblical unity within a body of Christ that begins right here. With humility and not selfishness or vainglory. One promotes itself, the other promotes Christ and the church. Listen, so many people that I know and I've come to know, they have left churches for the most selfish things. Someone didn't talk to my child or the food was too cold or the guy hit the wrong string, the wrong note. How selfish can we be? You're meant to go to church and give yourself away to the body of Christ. And here the Apostle Paul is calling people in the church to stop seeking your own interests, in your own glory, in your mind, your own ambitions, in your own motives, your own pride. By the way, let me just quickly say this. This can also happen whilst you're serving. That you want to be recognized as someone, you want, you want the accolades, you know, you're doing something. And if someone doesn't press like or when you do something, you kind of get upset. You know, that's selfishness. You put a really nice quote from J.C. Ryle, nobody answers. You know, I'm going, oh, I don't know what's going on with these people. It can happen even in service. But Paul calls them to have a humble mind, a heart of Christ that seeks the best for others, not for self. For the glory of God. This is a call for self-denial. A call to go to the nth degree for the unity of the church with a humble heart. What is humility? It is to be in a state of lowliness. You're, You're low. And this could not be as far as the east is from the west. Apart from there's humility here and this is selfishness and vainglory. There are two opposites. person sets himself low. He puts himself, and you've often heard Wes say it, myself say, you make yourself a doormat. In actual fact, as you know, probably most of you have studied this, that in the Greek they did not even have a word for humility. I don't know how many of you know that. This word was in fact only found in the 2nd century. Some scholars have actually said that this word for humility in the Greek was actually penned by Paul to try and explain the humility of Jesus because this culture was driven by nothing but pride and arrogance and, and strength and humility to them was weakness. And uselessness. It had no value or strength to them. To have humility for us, it defies all pride. Humility gets rid of all selfishness. Humility deals with all the vain glory. Humility takes you off your high horse and puts you down. You say, well, that was in that culture, Ralph. Really? We don't have that in our culture? We are not self-centered in our culture? 
People often use, you know, even in scriptures, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Ooh, that's really humble. Or maybe we have sayings like this, you know, I scratch your back, you scratch mine, right? Meaning I help you and you help me. I have a question. What happens when a person stops scratching your back? When that person stops helping you, you turn your face away from them and you say to hell with you, I don't even know you. That's not humility. That's pride and selfishness. But humility means that you will scratch that person's back. You will help that person, not because they are going to help you back, but because you want what's best for them. I am not justifying people who are, who are not helping one another here. But for those of us who desire to grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ, well, let me remind you, are you in chapter 2? of Philippians, and let's look at this for a minute. Oh, we will look at this in detail next time. But look at verse 7 of our Lord Jesus Christ, and let's understand humility. He emptied himself. And he took a form of a slave. He took a form of a bondservant, that is a slave, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of men, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Jesus says, and he invites people to come to me, all you're weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. He says, learn from me. I am gentle. I am humble. This is our Lord Jesus Christ who, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And as the wrath of God then was poured out on Jesus Christ, if I can use the illustration, then he was scratching every believer's back who put their faith and trust in him. He did not ask for anything in return. But Father, forgive him, for they know not what they do. Nothing will make sense to you right now, this morning, unless you have given your life to Jesus Christ. Unless Jesus Christ has, so to speak, scratched your back. If Jesus has not died for your sins, you remain in your sins. If you have not trusted him, then who are you trusting? Believe in him. That's the call. And you shall be saved. Jesus Christ regarded himself lower than us by dying on the cross. And then leads us to what? It says, regard one another more important than yourselves. Regard other people more important. Do you see this picture here? Do you see it? The opposite of selfishness and empty conceit is humility. And seeing others higher than yourself. In fact, you want to help the other person to get on that horse. You want to serve the other person. Because you see others more important than yourself. And verse 4 says, do not merrily, you can scratch out the merrily and say, do not look out for your own personal interest. 
but also for the interest of others. And this is what this is really saying. is not to look at your own things, but the things of others and the personal interest here is not so much speaking about hobbies and things of the world, but really about the things of God, really about what you ought to be like within the body of Christ. Don't look at your own interests. When you come to church, you just want to be served. That's what Paul is saying here. But look at the interests of others. Humble yourself. Get off that horse. Lower yourself in whatever giftedness God has given you, whatever abilities he has given you. Put yourself low and serve others above yourself. The key is others, not self. The key here is others. The humility in unity for others. And this here, it takes hard work. It takes work. We desire to be united, do we not? Do we not want to be united like Christ is with the Father? Whatever this man here, he sees he sees all for the need of the brethren. He's motivated by God. He doesn't want to be selfish. He, he doesn't want vain glory. He doesn't want his own personal interest. But his desire is to build up the body of Christ where he's been called. There's a reason that we read the church covenant once a month. It is to remind the brethren who belong to this church as to what we ought to be like in unity and humility. And so how do we apply this? If Christ motivates us, then we ought to then emulate the Lord. And let me ask you these few questions. Is Christ then moving your heart to serve for the unity of the church? If there's any encouragement, in Christ? Is there any encouragement in Christ in you? Any consolation of love of Christ in you? Do you have fellowship with the Spirit and affection and compassion? Then is that moving you? Is your heart as the Lord who prayed for unity of oneness the same? Do you love your brethren? You know, it's a simple question, right? But it has a lot of depth. When we say, do you love your brethren? Do they know it? Do they see it? We want unity, brethren, so that a Christ will dwell all the more in this place. What are you giving up for the sake of your brethren? Because it's hard, hard work to be unified sometimes. But it's so rewarding. Are you struggling with selfishness? Only one person's nodding his head. I say the rest of you in denial. Is there bitterness in your heart and unforgiveness? Do you want to be served or do you want to serve? These are just questions for you to meditate upon. 
Do you regard others above yourself? Do you regard others more than yourself? How do you view this little church? And how far will you grow, or will you go rather, for the growth of this church? And do you get alongside your brethren and encourage them to cheer them on? In fact, I'm going to go the other way. Do you let your brother and sister get beside you? Because that's just as true. There are those who desire, and I know they, oh, they so desire to get beside one, and the other is never around to be beside. So the, the question is, are you allowing someone to get beside you? As much as is, are you willing to get beside someone? How committed are you at Saving Grace Bible Church as a member? To be united. I want to finish with Colossians. So please turn to Colossians. Colossians is the next book. So turn a couple of pages. Chapter 3 in Colossians. Just as a way of an application, we just read the Word of God. From verse 12. So chapter 3, verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, are you chosen? Are you born again? That, and then this is talking to you. And do you belong to Saving Grace Bible Church? Then this is talking to you. Holy and beloved. Look at what it says. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. What else should we do? Bearing with one another. And forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, this is how you ought to forgive. Just as the Lord forgave you. So you should, beyond all of these, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. You see that? Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. This is what we just looked at. In which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. And here's how you do it. Also, brethren, let the word of Christ richly dwell in you, within you. With all wisdom, teaching and admonition. Uh, forgive me. Teaching admonishing one, one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with a thankful thankfulness in your hearts to God. May that be your application. I pray that the Lord Jesus Christ has motivated you, that your life matches your profession, especially here as members of Saving Grace Bible Church. And I pray that you put to practice what we learned so that you're not selfish or having vainglory for self, but for the purpose of Christ and His church, you humble yourself and you see others before yourself. Father, we come before you, Lord. Oh, Lord, what, a, what an amazing portion of Scripture you've given us today. What a call, Lord God, for the unity of the church. This is a huge calling, Father. But we thank you that we are motivated, that we have Christ within us, the Spirit in fellowship, 
we have the compassion and the love, the encouragement, the strength. We have the Spirit who guides us, Lord God. Oh Lord, but we want to be all the more in one mind, one soul. Lord, that we may live this life unified for Christ. Not living selfishly, selfish, Lord God, and for vain glory or for our own purposes. May it never be, God. We pray, Father, that we will live holy and pure for our Lord Jesus Christ. And for those, Father, who are not born of you yet, I pray, Father, that you will give them no rest until they find true rest in Christ Jesus and him alone. Amen.